Rusty Quill presents. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Sin Carriers, we were introduced to a handful of our dramatis personae. The rogue killer, Sue. A wild woman with a bloody past and a penchant for running astray of the law. Vasily, a morose Russian traveler whose wife unfortunately passed before their ship arrived on the American West Coast. 
Moira, a precocious young woman and sole child of Tolliver Lobe, whose company has been tasked with transporting an odd load of old shipwood into the east. This episode, we are introduced to the rest of our party as they embark on a train ride toward bloodshed, misery, and horror. Knife slingers, thieves on the lamb, and most frightening of all, a Catholic priest. Will these odd and dangerous strangers embark without bloodshed? Just what sort of baggage are they bringing with them? And what mysteries lay in the wood? You may find the answer to these questions and more on this, the second episode of Sin Carrier's Departure. Sue walked slow through the city, cutting a crooked path to keep where she might have a good excuse to be if somebody stopped her. The meeting with Blackwell had gone just about as well as she could have hoped, though it was plenty suspicious. No credentials, no references for a security job was fairly uncommon, save for only in the leanest sort of positions. He didn't seem the type to want her for something boring, and in any case... The ticket man hadn't been looking for lost, lonely young girls or any such thing. They'd been hunting for toughs, and in a roundabout way that made it fairly clear the work was illicit. Moving contraband, most likely, all the way out east at that. So long as it wasn't people or badly kept animals in the cargo, she'd take the job and keep her head down. Folks wanted to smuggle in opium. Fine by her. Her only concern was the mileage between her and the tenement from last night. Sue looked around a corner onto the main road where she'd been staying. A high, dumpy road winding all the way up to the top of the big hill east of the harbor. She'd been dressing pretty and staying in an unmarried women's house up until last night, but that was no reason to believe nobody had heard a description of her from the tenement and connected the dots. The only reason she was back here at all was to grab her kit bag from the place she'd stashed it before heading back to the rail yard. It didn't seem like there was much of a search on for a murderer in any case. The streets were mostly empty after the storms had passed. Hey, you, a man said. She almost kicked herself when she saw a police officer storming in her direction. She gave him a big smile and took a deep, relieved breath. Oh, Lord above, she said. Good morning, officer. Good morning yourself, he said softening a touch when she removed her hat and set it against her chest. Sue put her legs so that her feet went pigeon-toed and kneaded her hat in her hand. Not her best con, but it was in this officer's best interest to be stupid enough to believe her. Young lady, are you wearing boys' clothing for some reason? Yes, sir, she said. My brother Johnny is sick and I'm to do his runarounds this morning. They don't check and see who does it so long as they're done. I wore his clothes on account of they might think it's him anyway, and if they get dirty, they's just boys' clothes. The police officer chuckled to himself. Is that so? Yes, sir. What sort of runarounds are you doing then? He asked. She pointed up the street. I got some porches to sweep and bins to move around for the bin man, sir. She said. What houses? Blue one up there and, and yellow and uh, red. The officer held up his hand. 
I mean, what streets, girl? What numbers? Oh, sir, I don't know none of that, Sue said. She made a show of kicking the bricks with her toe. Really, she was just making sure her boot knife was there and loose if she needed to slit this pig's throat, but he was still a few hairs shy of that shave. I can't. I don't read, sir. Illiterate, he muttered. Are you Italian? Yes, sir. Sicilian? Yes, sir, Sue said. Sicilian, sir. She had no idea why everybody thought she was Sicilian, but it was better to let them think whatever they wanted. Her real ethnicity was nothing but trouble, a rarity that only ever invited more scrutiny. That's well enough, he said, pointing a finger at her nose. But you tell your parents you need schooling, understand? This country don't need any more illiterate Italians sitting around on corners drinking lemonade and tomato sauce, you hear? Yes, sir, she said. Now, why were you slinking around in that alley there? He said. And don't say you were working or any of that. I know slinking when I see it. I I think I saw a, a Negro man walking down that way, Sue said, pointing up the street. It was like dropping a hunk of beef by a dog, the way the man's nose shot in that direction. He took a breath and then pointed at Sue. Where'd you see that, girl? He asked. Don't be fooling around with me. I know your little route here now, and I'll come back looking for you. Up that a ways, Sue said, putting her hat back on her head. He wasn't doing much but looking around and walking. I think he might be a window washer or something, the way he was looking at those folks' windows. The houses in the direction she'd pointed were much nicer than the clapboard hovel she'd lived in the past week. Nice enough to make the officer worried. He pulled out his nightstick and tapped his palm. You stay here now, he said. If there's one loose up here, I don't need you getting involved. Yes, sir, Sue said. My daddy taught me not to go uh, nowhere near them kind. Smart man, the officer said. But tell him you need to get your schooling. Yes, sir, Sue said, watching him walk away. When he was a few dozen meters ahead of her, she started following in his footsteps, craning her head around innocently as though she were just trying to peep on what he was up to. Eventually, he passed the alley where she dropped her bag and she ducked inside it, feeling along the wall through the early morning shadows until she could feel the steel bands on the upturned barrel she'd hit it under. It made more noise than she would have liked, but a second later she had her bag over her shoulder and she was headed out the alley. Where do you think you're going? The officer said. He still had his baton in his hand, though now he looked ready to use it. And what's that? Your brother's stolen goods? Sue gave him a sheepish smile and raised her hands. Put it down, you. Let's have a look-see. Sue set the bag down carefully, unwinding the strap in a way that brought her hand right next to her boot. Before the cop could say anything, she pulled the knife and flipped it open, holding it to his throat. He tried to push her away, but she cut him a bit, and that took the fight out of him. Don't, she said. Just don't. You only get one mistake here, copper, and I really think you already made it. 
He glared at her and she adjusted the knife. You keep them pretty eyes on the sky, boy. You understand me? You can just say yes or no. Yes, he said. She felt around his belt for a pistol, found it, and pulled it to put it in her waistband. She wished he was the sort that carried around his own manacles, too, but you only got so lucky. You looking for somebody for something, or just bothering folk this morning? Sue asked. Did you do something we should know about? He asked. If you put that knife down, I'll take you to the station and you can tell them about it. We'll even forget all this. What do you say? I say no to that, and squarely. Sue said with a laugh. But that's funny enough, I'll give it to you. Now, answer my question. Were you looking or bothering? Looking, he said. For a prostitute who murdered a man in his home last night. A prostitute? Sue asked. She pretty. What'd she kill him for? I don't know, he said in a flat voice. That's just the word on the street. Sue grinned up at him, reaching her hand around to his backside and grazing her fingers over his ass. He bristled and turned his face higher. She found his billfold and slipped it into her pocket. I bet she was pretty, Sue whispered to him. Now, where's the closest barber or doctor type around here? My barber is three blocks away, the cop said. Oh, you live around here? Sue said. Is that why you went coon hunting the second I said I saw a black man? He said nothing. Well, that's your business anyway. Here's what you really got to focus on. Neck wound like what might come from this sort of blade here can be pretty nasty looking, but it's good and sharp. They can usually sew them right up. You strip that shirt of yours off and press it down tight, I'm sure you'll make it in time. Just don't run. You'll start pumping too quick and that might be it for you. He was breathing hard, staring at her. You ready? She asked. Don't, he said. She cut him and ran, so shallow he might not have even felt it, but the bite was there. A second later, she was mostly to the end of the block, stealing glances back as he shuffled out of the alley, bleeding through the uniform shirt pressed to his neck. The sun was a fat red blister still waiting to rise when Sue approached the train platform. There were more people in the area now, though they were just a mix of the same she'd seen when she'd bought her tickets. Working men heading for shifts in rail yards, men carrying papers, and women going about a thousand different tasks nobody seemed to notice. Scattered through all of these were vagabonds and drifters and drunks, some begging for money and others just sleeping out the storm in overhangs. The rain is delayed, sister, a woman said. Sue glanced down to see a dark-skinned woman with wide, pale eyes dressed in a white lace shift caked with moist dirt. Small plants had rooted in the filth and were budding around the woman's calves. She smiled at Sue and Sue nodded at her, though she didn't know if the woman could see her to acknowledge it. Yeah, I suppose it's drier than I expected, Sue said, holding the crown of her hat and looking upward. The sun had yet to rise, but the clouds were already lightening to a wispy purple-blue. She 
sucked her teeth and took a step back when she saw the woman was trying to touch her sleeve. Sue covered the bloodstain the tenement had left there as though to hide it. You have five minutes of free time, which I'll trade for your future, the woman said. Sue found she was trying to determine the woman's point of origin and figured it was somewhere in the Levant. Maybe just south of the old empire, like her own people. It was odd to meet her here, of all places. And usually Sue didn't make time for beggars. But this woman had transfixed her. She gestured to a small tent in the mouth of an alley just a few blocks up from the Blackwell building Sue had been inside earlier. Please, she said. Come inside. Vasily had decided he very much liked Miss Moira Loeb, despite her talkative nature and occasional bad manners, and very much despised her father because of his talkative nature and his endless bad manners. The man had been the first thing he came across after his remarkable run-in with the letter. Vasily had wanted to share his experience with somebody, hoping to make it more real through discussion, as was a habit of his. He'd hoped young Miss Loeb would allow him to bend her ear for a moment and possibly even help him solve this little mystery. But Tolliver Loeb had inserted himself into the situation like a dagger in Vasily's eye. It was almost as though the storm that had been rolling in through the bay had paused in deference to a more destructive force. Tolliver was fat, short, and terribly, terribly American in all his mannerisms. His voice heralded his coming and never truly seemed to stop, and was somehow completely empty of meaning as well, so that while he spoke, the mind reeled to translate depthless observations and additions. The man was a child, noticing everything for the first time, commenting on it and deliberating on its value and ultimately adding nothing to the earth but sound. He was thunder, waiting for the lightning to strike. Lord, what is that smell? was the first sentence Tolliver spoke. Not to Vasily, but somehow into his vicinity. It was repeated many times, that question, often following other thoughts with such immediacy it was like a punctuation in and of itself. Are the men here? What is that smell? Has the train arrived? What is that smell? Lord, this humidity, what is that smell? He excreted other non-thoughts as well for the several minutes Vasily stood by, being ignored. Tolliver pointed to ropes bearing loads of a thousand kilograms and asked if they were tight. Pointed to men struggling under the weight of a parcel and asked if the load was heavy. Pointed to the sweat on his face and wondered if the rain had caused a spike in humidity. And always, between that, what is that smell? What is that smell? What is that smell? Lord, if this man is thunder, send the lightning into my heart, Vasily said in Russian as squat. Beloviating, Tolliver wallowed around the cart and pointed at his luggage. His heart went out to Miss Loeb, who was a doting and patient daughter, following this waddling, vomitous duck around and seeing it didn't bother its employees too badly. Father, this is Mr. Vasily Tovarish, Moira said, finally getting the man settled in a way he could take in words instead of just spouting them. He blinked, almost as though a few were lifting, 
and reached out a hand to Vasily. He knew in his heart that if he handed a lump of cake to Tolliver Loeb in that second, the man would have curled up on his back and suckled it like an infant. He smiled and shook Tolliver's hand, grimacing when the man tried to crush his fingers. Who are you? Tolliver asked, not letting go of Vasily. Vasily Tovarish, Vasily said, dipping his head toward Moira. Your daughter has convinced me to hire your services. I am en route to St. Louis. Vasily stopped talking as Tolliver began waving his hand and walking away, eventually making it to the coach and having the man there help him up into the passenger seat. No, 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 Tolliver said. We're not taking on additional passengers or cargo for this run, I'm afraid. This is a specific job and there can be no exceptions. I'm afraid there must be an exception, Vasily said, stepping up beside Tolliver's seat. I have already bargained and paid for my travel. Your daughter spoke as your auxiliary, and I have already been loaded aboard your wagon here. This wagon. Moira! Tolliver yelled, as though the woman were in another country and not standing beside the carriage wheel looking at him. Yes, Daddy? She replied sweetly. Have you been selling transit on our behalf again? He asked, not looking at her. The man beside him, the coach driver, rolled his eyes and lit a cigarette, dropping the reins as though he planned to be here quite a while. I have been working for our company's interests, yes, father, Moira said, voice chill but pleasant. Tolliver grumbled and held out his hand to her. Twenty dollars, she said. He gave her a ridiculous look and then wiggled his fingers. I'm not handing it over until you pay me my commission, Daddy, which is 20% on out-of-state sales. 20, he grumbled. Then his eyes perked up and he looked from Moira to Vasily to Moira again. He leaned over, whispering as softly as a buffoon like him was capable. You charged this man $100 for passage to St. Louis? Yes, Moira said raising her chin and looking away from the man. She held her hand out and Tolliver slapped his pockets quickly, pulling out a billfold and slapping two fresh $10 notes into Moira's hand. She gave her father a thin smile and then turned away, coming back a second later with the hundred Vasily had paid her with. Tolliver held it up to the coach lantern, licked his lips, and then bumbled about in his seat to flick his fingers at his daughter. Go, go, go help uh, Mr... Tokarev? Tovarish, Vasily corrected, irritated even though it wasn't his real last name. Help Mr. Torvarsh into the cab there. Okay, sweetie, Tolliver said. Moira gave him a smile befitting the affection and gestured to the open door of the cab Vasily was already stepping into. He gave Moira a tight nod and then slumped inside on the seat, happy to be out of direct contact with the man. Then he felt the cab shifting as the chubby son of a bitch foisted himself off the front seat and waddled around to the door. Are you comfortable, Mr. Torbosh? He asked. Tovarish, Vasily corrected, tapping the tops of his knees. He wished he'd not packed the book he'd been reading, but he'd assumed he'd be pushing that cart around all night. If he'd known he was going to suffer through this, he might have even unpacked his gun as an escape measure. Yes, sir, Tolliver said. I'll have my Moira ride up front and let us men talk. I'd rather... Father, I'm not riding up front in the rain, Moira said, 
pushing in next to the fat man. Tolliver realized not taking up the first offer to ride up front had been a grievous error. Oh, no, 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 I suppose not, Tolliver said. Then he began talking and did not shut his mouth until they were watching the steam roll out the stacks at the train yard. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sue took a seat on the pillow the woman offered and folded her legs. 
keeping her bag tucked between her knees in case somebody tried to reach in for a snatch and run. The woman was clearly blind, but that didn't mean she didn't have friends. How about we get to this? Sue asked, checking on the light outside the tent. She harbored little doubt that her copper from earlier would have sent people after her, but that was just another worry for the day. She had lawmen and other types hunting after her in about every state and territory west of the Mississippi. The ones she was looking for just happened to get around like that, and so she seemed to get in trouble everywhere. Her only real concern at the moment, though, was missing the train. On account of she had no idea what time it was. What gods do you keep, young woman? The blind woman asked. Sue turned her full attention to the wizened, searching face watching her pale eyes shift aimlessly as she flicked a few dozen odd cards onto a sheet spread over a potato box. They weren't any sort of cards Sue had seen, not even the cups and sword sort she'd run across in carnivals. Each bore a different phase of the moon, all with queer and devilish faces. Sue felt her skin crawl. I ain't found any worth keeping, she finally replied. What are those cards there? moons, the woman said. Her fingers were careful and quick as she laid out the cards, all face up and correctly ordered in six lines by suit. And they were faces, too. Angry, sad, happy. Some still were dead, and others were depictions of odd, seemingly religious figures. When they were all in order, the woman flipped them over and deftly swirled them about. They became like a great eye in the center of the table, or possibly the whirling heart of a tornado. I ain't never seen the likes of them before, Sue said, transfixed by the blind woman's fingers. She spun her left and right hands clockwise, stirring the cards and flipping them up against each other until they had formed three impossible domes. A few cards were left out and lay like a pond around three rounded stones. The woman flourished her fingers, and Sue could hear the bones cracking in the ancient joints. It's a rare game, the woman said. A little interest to those outside my coterie, though it is growing in popularity. She splayed her fingers over the domes. Each of these is a misery, dear, which you will find along your journey. Plunge your fingers into them and take a card. It is most common to start with the body. She pointed to the center dome, which was closest to Sue then follow to the mind and end with the soul. But the choice is yours. She pointed to the domes on Sue's left and right hand, specifically. The hell sort of fortune-telling is this? She asked the woman. It's not, the woman replied with a serious look. It is doomsaying, which was common to my people and will die with me when I go. Sue gave her a look. Doomsay, she repeated. Well, I can tell you why your people don't practice that anymore. Who the hell go to the carnival for that trick? I mean, you might do some blackjack with that card work woman, but Lord, I don't want to get involved in no doomsaying. The old woman smiled and laughed. It's not so dire as it sounds, she said, flourishing her fingers over the table. A wise goat herd would do better to know of a wolf attack than a healthy breeding season. 
She folded her elegant hands over her shoulders, bowing her head either to the cards or to Sue. People who seek fortunes often remain oblivious to their pains, their shortfallings. They shelter themselves in the soft golden fleece of dream and so are ill-prepared for the stones of tomorrow. Worse, they think only of the mutable future and so are guided by the rough and inconstant tides of time. The woman pressed her fingers down on the cards and spun them again, pulling up three new domes in the time it took Sue to realize what had happened. Hey, she said. The woman laughed. Have I changed your fortune, you think? She asked. You are familiar with a process that is a mere game of chance. But, sweet one, this is doomsaying. The cards are writ. Your future is your own, but only if you ground yourself in the unforgiving sands of the past. She rested her hands in her lap. Please, choose. Sue gave her a look and floated her hand over the body dome, waiting for a long second before taking a card. She jumped when the pile collapsed. Lord, she muttered to herself. The old woman had her shook, surely. She turned over the card and saw a fat, red moon glaring at her. She showed it to the woman and then almost apologized, but the woman spoke first. The full red moon of rage, she said in a soft voice, nodding slowly and remaining perfectly still until Sue tried to return the card to the pile. Keep that, was all she added for a long time. There were noises, soft, rhythmic bells, and the alley beyond the tent. Finally, she spoke. The body is the organ of the present, which feels and exists but does not do for itself, for it is swept and battered and broken, she said. Your moon is a great fury, almost beyond your ability to control. It drives you even when you do not mean to let it. Sue sniffed and looked out the tent at the legs now bustling around the street outside. Some looked like the uniformed pants the station police might wear, but none of them seemed to be doing much more than idling around. What does all that mean? She asked. The old woman chuckled. That's up to you, she said. Though your voice suggests you already know. She waved a hand over the cards returning Sue's attention to them. Please, continue. The next most common choice is the soul card. She gestured to the pile on Sue's right, and Sue took a card impatiently, not caring about the falling pile this time. She flipped it over on her knee, having already tucked the full red moon in her pocket. This card was empty, save for a hazy black disc at the center. Ah, the old woman said. The eclipse. What's that mean? Am I gonna die? Sue asked. The woman nodded. Of course, she said. Everything dies. But that card is not a death card. 
It merely means your moon is obscured in the dome of the soul. She rolled her neck and pointed to the card, urging Sue to hold on to this one as well. Soul is the dome of the future, but often not the future you will live. It is a measure of what you will leave behind when the body and mind have failed. She scratched her chin and then folded her hands over the table. A curious woman could redraw if she wanted, could make her legacy more certain. I'm fine, Sue said, feeling a touch light throughout her entire body. In her nearly 28-odd years on Earth, she'd never much considered what the moments after her death might bring. The thought even of anybody remembering her was a strange one. Words like legacy did not belong to women in her experience, much less anybody like her. Cautiously, she reached out and took the last card, plucking it gently from the dome and watching as the dome stood, 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 and finally sank onto itself. This is my past then, Sue said, looking at the card. It was a little sliver of a thing, a blue thumbnail crescent with sad eyes. She tossed it onto the face-down cards atop the table and crossed her arms. Bullshit. The hell is that supposed to mean? I had just a little bit of trouble or something. The woman shook her head. The dome of the mind is the dome of the past, she said. Like the way our mind dwells on things, so this card is what you dwell on. She nodded somberly. It is the most powerful card, young one, for it is the seed of our present and our futures. Your chosen moon represents not a sadness and does not consider the sadness you have faced. It is a card of regret, a thin and minor thing, like a cut that never stops bleeding. Sue opened her mouth to ask for clarification, but the woman held her hands over the cards and then dug her fingers into them, turning up the collapsed domes and spinning them about Sue's chosen card in the middle. The noises outside, the chimes and little skin drums, grew louder. Then the woman lifted her fingers, and the cards danced beneath them in tight, graceful circles. Little dervishes whirling about the center card with its obscene and oversized tear. Then she could hear the repetitive chanting, and Sue knew what she was looking at. Stop that, she said. The old woman looked tired. Her blind eyes hung low over shadows of men twirling in prayer. Sue pulled her shaving knife out of her boot and flicked it open, pointing at the woman. Her hand trembled then, just as it had all those years ago. A black feather floated in through the tent door and stuck to the shivering steel between them. Then there were hundreds of feathers, a tornado of them, coalescing into the air as though from smoke. They landed on Sue's face, on her hand. Across the tent, behind the woman, the shadow of a raptor spread its wings. The old woman paid heed to none of this as she reached forward and plucked the last card off the table raising her eyes to Sue as she did so. They were still pale, but a dull red glow suffused the space behind them, 
and poured out through five thin slits in her cornea. A hound of sticks, a voice whispered deep in Sue's heart. She fought it down and it repeated itself, bouncing off the walls of her mind. A hound of sticks. The woman reached past the knife and tucked the card in Sue's hair, just above her right ear. Sue broke into tears as the woman's fingers brushed softly past her cheek, and she burst from the tent, tearing it partially down in the process and rolling into the street. People stared at her as she snatched her bag and her hat off the ground, all but running toward the train beginning to steam up at the end of the platform. In all that confusion, she didn't notice the card of the crying moon never so much as budged from where the woman had left it in her hair. Vasily found himself longing for the cold isolation of the Russian ship as the wagon rumbled on through the black guts of this industrial American city. It was not so bad as, say, London, with its endless tenements and persistent stench. Perhaps this was only because of the newness of this burgeoning coastal town. The English had many centuries of practiced degradation under their belts, while the Americans were still fairly new at it. But given that the conditions around him had occurred in such a short time, likely they'd be the golden standard for foulness in a century or so. And what did you say you do for work? Tolliver asked for approximately the sixth time in their journey. A little itch in Vasily's mind almost made him want the man to make a prime of it before they ended their journey. Vasily sighed and adjusted his personal bag on his lap. The devices inside made a curious rattling that no doubt made Tolliver's mouth water. I didn't, sir, Vasily repeated. This American was a study in repugnance, somehow both eternally ignorant and ever-questioning. His interrogatives served no greater purpose than to maintain the motion of some curious cog in his own mind. A nasty, scratching thing Vasily could almost feel harmonizing with every discomfort in the wagon. Every little bump, each little jostle. All of it was made worse by the endless gutter in Tolliver's throat. Worst of all, Vasily could tell this was somehow intentional. It was an exercise designed to wear down prey to some end. Perhaps the closing of deals on favorable terms or the like. And this wasn't a cognizant display. The man likely didn't understand he was doing this, but had merely happened upon such insidiousness with the natural ignorance of a swallow pecking out the brains of some other bird's chicks. And what did you say you did for work? Tolliver asked again, having gone around a planet's worth of topics to arrive back at the origin question. The topics were inanities Vasily didn't, couldn't, have any interest in. Agrarian policies enacted by Tolliver's brother on exactly two company-owned farms north of Cincinnati. The goings-on of an amateur baseball team in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the second time Tolliver had discovered rat droppings, but not the rat, in a hotel which cost more than one dollar per night. Tolliver flowed through all these topics with an almost expert hand in ignoring every potentially interesting thing about them. He did not mention what the policies his brother had enacted were, 
only that they had been enacted and reacted to with some mild interest by local farmers. He neglected to mention the name of, record of, or his interest in the Pittsburgh team, merely remarking on the existence of it and mentioning that he'd heard they were real ball players. Most irritating was his story about the godforsaken rat droppings. He began this story with, My day was absolutely ruined by rat droppings once, and then failed to describe finding them. This was the entirety of his rumination on rat droppings, adding that it was the second time he'd found rat droppings at a hotel costing over $1 per night to rent. He never said what had been done about the droppings. He never even said where he found the things. Most insanely, he never recounted the first time he'd found them either. Vasily found his own mind doing double work trying to make sense of not just why Tolliver was prattling on about these things, but why the man had bothered retaining any of this information in the slightest. It was akin to visiting a fine china shop, where literally every plate was chipped, if not broken. Cups without saucers, silverware sets without forks. Vasily opened his mouth to repeat himself, but the coach rounded over a nasty bump and he became momentarily airborne while the suspension adjusted itself. Then they were rolling to a graceless stop which was just enough motion to cause Moira to rouse herself from sleep. (sighs) Have we arrived? She asked, fanning her mouth. She'd taken the entire bench across from Vasily and her father, her broad, lacy hat filling the seat beside her. She finished yawning and pulled the hat onto her lap, giving her father a direct look and then tilting her head toward the door. His diluvian explanation of Some of the oddest cheese he'd ever eaten, which did not describe the taste of the cheese or how he'd come to eat it, guttered out in his throat like a trash fire, and he shuffled about to open the door for his daughter. The wagon rocked a great deal, bouncing Vasily against the padded wall beside him. If he had to endure much more of this man in close quarters, he would be bouncing against padded walls for the rest of his life. Thank you, Daddy. Moira said in a sweet voice, wriggling her fingers at Vasily, who gave a tight smile and nodded. Manners alone had kept him from darting out the door the absolute second the confounded wagon had stopped. The second the young woman's feet were on the ground outside, he turned to open the door on his side of the carriage. No, 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 Tolliver shouted, shouted, shuffling the man onto the other bench and hurling himself toward the door to open it for Vasily. The younger man had tried to beat him to the door latch and succeeded in that effort, but Tolliver was not to be denied. He threw the door open with a great, mustachioed smile, catching the handle on Vasily's shirt and tossing him outside with the rocking motion of the carriage suspension. Vasily harbored a faint belief that he'd land gracefully on his feet for all of two seconds before landing hard on blunt, wet gravel. He'd heard a nasty tearing noise on his way through the door and knew he'd damaged his coat. But it was only after he was laying in the rain-thickened muck that he realized his coat had been ripped off him entirely. He'd spun free of the thing on the way out the carriage and, looking between his knees, he saw it was still hanging from the door latch beside Tolliver's gobsmacked face. It stayed there for only a second more, while they looked at each other and then fell limply into a broad puddle beneath the carriage step. It floated, sadly, and then sunk. Tolliver looked at the coat, at Vasily, and then closed the door, 
shutting himself back inside the carriage. Vasily laid back, letting the rain fall over his face and laughed softly to himself. He imagined Yumiko standing over him, pretending to be mortified while trying to stifle her own laughter. The thought almost pushed him into tears, but a shadow fell over Vasily and he opened his eyes. A staggeringly tall man stood over him, framed against the pale purple sky. You have a queer sort of way about you, the man said. He spoke with a light Spanish accent, rolling around in the mud like that. He reached down and Vasily took his hand, letting the man lift him to his feet. The lanky stranger stepped back and Vasily got a better look at him. He had a thin face with high cheekbones and dark, narrow eyes. The man grinned, which did not set Vasily at ease. In fact, it made him feel like a mouse. Thank you, he said, still taking the man in. He'd never seen such a creature in his life. You think nothing of it, the man said, plucking Vasily's wet, ripped coat from the puddle and letting it turn in his fingers. He frowned at the thing and held it out to Vasily like it was a great length of tripe. Here you go, though I don't know if I'd want it back. Vasily did want it back, in fact, though he refrained from wearing it. My, I am Vasily Tovarish, he said, extending a hand to the man who grinned and returned the handshake. His hand utterly engulfed Vasily's, though it was, like the rest of him, very thin. When the greeting had ended, the man's hand disappeared into the red and yellow poncho dangling from his shoulders to the waist. He wore a red, accented straw hat with a wide brim that sat just over his eyes when he spoke, the band of which was painted with a ring of grinning cats. Call me Gatto the man said. Vasily's eyebrows perked up. Gatto, he said. As in cat? Vasily asked in his best Spanish. The man grinned all the wider and tipped his hat in acknowledgement, which made the brim bounce a great deal. The very and only one such as me, he said. Do you, do you have a real name? Vasily asked, expecting the man was playing with him. Oh, many, many, was all he said in reply, tipping his hat again and striding off toward the train platform. An engine whistled and Vasily could see the steam curling up over the roof of the sideless building they'd stopped beside. The man, Gatto, was already climbing the stairs to the platform on the other side of the carriage. Vasily sighed and made to follow him. Ah, uh, Mr. Tavarish. Tolliver said when he approached the other side of the carriage. The heavy man had been sitting on the floorboards with his feet on the metal stair, holding his face in his hands and bent at the waist. He stiffened up the second Vasily passed him and jumped down, trying to reinvigorate himself by slapping Vasily's clothes clean. Vasily stepped back, thanking him to stop and then outright pushing at the man's bald, hatless head when that didn't work. Tolliver persisted and Vasily threw his hands up, allowing the man to pat at the stains the mud had left on his legs and waist. A short man in light-colored, heavy leather clothing walked past, and Tolliver stopped beating on Vasily to tap him on the shoulder. The person stopped, and Vasily was surprised to see a woman's face under the hat when she turned toward them. 
It was clear in her expression that she'd had something on her mind when Tolliver had interrupted her. Excuse me, uh, young man, Tolliver asked. Vasily gave him a mortified look, but the woman didn't seem bothered at all, at least by the misgendering. Are you, uh, do you work, or are you getting up on that train there? Sure, she said, kicking her hat up higher on her head with a flick of her chin and putting the heels of her palms on her hips. She licked at her front teeth with her mouth open, giving Vasily and Tolliver both an appraising look. Yes, 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 Tolliver said, looking from her to Vasily and nodding at them both as though this was some large conversation they were all involved in. He rubbed his hands together and then wiped his palms on his legs and went back to rubbing them. Vasily considered running for the platform. If you've signed on with Mr. Blackwell's outfit, then you are now a temporary employee of Loeb Enterprises, be gifted with all the honors and duties that entails. Tolliver nodded at her, clearly expecting her to nod along, but she just looked at him like he was trying to explain that the sun was hot and people shouldn't look at it too long. Tolliver cleared his throat. That, out of the way, I'd like to engage you with your first task, Tolliver said. The woman just kept staring at him like he was a slug that could talk, but never said anything worthwhile. Or, perhaps Vasily added that part in his mind, but it wasn't far from the truth. Tolliver pointed at Vasily. My good friend, Mr. Tvardich, is in need of a strong young man to unload his belongings and mine onto the train. Tolliver gave her a look and then rolled his eyes in the direction of the cart after an awkward second passed, expecting her to hop to it. Give me five dollars, the woman said in a flat voice. Excuse me? Tolliver's eyebrows rose as he rotated back toward her. I said give me five dollars, boy. The woman repeated herself. Tolliver took a breath and then launched into a diatribe about how the young man would be doing him a favor, handling the bags, and how he was lucky to even be offered the opportunity in the first place. Vasily was still somewhat stunned Tolliver hadn't realized he was speaking with a young, fairly attractive woman. Even her rough clothing didn't do much to hide the feminine shape of her. Vasily jumped when she leaned forward and snapped in Tolliver's face. Tolliver, to his credit, merely flinched and then continued on speaking as though nothing had happened. Undeterred, the young woman kept snapping her fingers in front of his face until he finally shut his mouth. Vasily, unable to help himself, counted out a satisfying eleven snaps. Why are you doing that to me? Tolliver asked, sounding legitimately confused. Because you wouldn't shut your damn mouth, the young woman said. Now, you understand the game of baseball? Of course, Tolliver replied. He tried talking again and she snapped at him three times. Perfect. When he was quiet, she pointed at him. Shush you. Now that's your first strike, understand? Tolliver didn't, clearly, but she didn't seem to care. She held out her hand. Give me five dollars and don't you make me repeat myself. Tolliver finally quiet, took out his wallet and obeyed, putting five single dollars in the woman's hand. She counted it, tucked it inside her jacket pocket, and walked up the staircase to the platform. Wait, Tolliver said, 
almost to himself. He pointed at the back of the wagon. The parcels? Mr. Torvarsh's luggage is back here. The woman didn't say anything, just waved a hand and kept walking. Vasily took advantage of the quiet moment to slip past Tolliver, grab his bag and the hat he'd dropped falling out the door, and start up after the young woman. Oh, wait, Mr. Torvald, Tolliver said. Could you? I could. Vasily didn't want to risk starting another conversation or, worse, have Tolliver start following him. He doffed his hat while backpedaling and hurried up the ramp. I'm sure you have it all in hand, he called back to Tolliver, breaking into a crisp jog to catch up with the woman. She turned her head when he caught up to her, but didn't stop walking. You're asking for trouble if he sent you jogging after me for a refund, the young woman said. She had a long, determined stride that was almost too fast for Vasily to keep up with. He'd done little in the way of walking in the months on the ship, and now everything seemed to wind him. No, miss, he said. She gave him a look and huffed at the word miss. I... He decided not to be polite about it and leaned down to whisper, That god-awful man never shuts his mouth, and you were a perfect excuse to get away from him. That made her laugh. Maybe I'll take five dollars off of you for the convenience, she said, chuckling. Vasily took a breath and nodded, daring a glance back at Tolliver. The beleaguered man was now unloading the wagon himself. I think I would gladly pay you ten if you could keep him away from me for the duration of this trip, Vasily said. The woman laughed harder. You that bad? She asked. Certainly, Vasily muttered. The woman laughed. They stopped walking at the back of a small crowd of people. A little person with an uncombed beard and a scrap of paper stood atop a barrel central to the gathering. The thin man, Gatto, was tall enough he seemed to soar over the other heads, and he winked when he saw Vasily looking at him. I think we're parting here, fella, the young woman said. She grabbed his wrist and put her hand in his, shaking it and giving him such a beaming smile he felt himself go off balance. My name's Sue. Just Sue, though. I like to leave it at that. Well, Miss Sue, my name is Vasily Tovarish, Vasily said, doffing his hat with his free hand and giving her half a bow. Just peachy to meet you there, Mr. Tovarish, she said. She got his name almost completely correct, though she pronounced the first syllable more like toe. But you don't bother with none of that Miss or Missy stuff with me. Just Sue's fine. She winked at him and leaned in, still holding his hand. You butter me up too much, I might end up trying to take advantage of you. Vasily opened his mouth, trying to find something to say, but remained thoroughly dumbstruck. This seemed to please Sue a great deal, because she reached over and gave him a convivial slap on the mid part of his back. The little person called a name and she looked over her shoulder. No, that's me, she said, letting him go. She pointed at him. See you around, Vasily Tavarish. You come call on me if you get lonesome now. Then she turned and pushed into the crowd, raising her hand and taking the envelope the little person held out for her. The name calling continued as she disappeared into the train car beside the platform. Vasily realized the name she'd responded to wasn't the name she'd introduced herself with, and as the crowd of men and women embarking on the train dwindled, 
He wondered aloud at just what he'd gotten himself into. Ducky sat with the body, letting the morning sun warm his back and watching ships mill about at the entrance to the harbor below. Somewhere down there, Mr. Jones would be just starting to panic, wondering where the key to the safe box was and what he might have done with it, what might be done with it. Ducky smiled at the thought of the man slapping around his office, holding his hand over his eye to quell a hangover and shouting for someone to come help him, God damn it. He would never find the key, though. It was in the bottom of the harbor and would stay there until it rusted away to nothing. The safe box would remain bolted to the floor until they pried it up and broke it open to find it empty, save for some worthless receipts and one of Mr. Jones' spare bottles of liquor. That might be what the man would be most worried about, explaining that small discovery away when the company heads came down to check on the missing money. If he lost his job alone... That would be them showing a great deal of kindness. Okay, then, Ducky said, standing and picking up the body by the tight linen bed sheets he'd wrapped it in. For his own burial, he'd have preferred a casket or the like, though they tended to just cremate his people when there wasn't somebody to claim them or bury them skin to skin in great open pits. Nameless dead is what she would be, despite her internment up here on the high hill she'd picked before the end. He'd had to sneak up to get the job done, but the risk and effort were worth it to pay her back for the life she'd given him. He folded her into the earth and wiped the sweat from his brow, throwing a last smirk down to Mr. Jones and then pressing his palm into the loose dirt. He felt for her down there, wondering if all this would be enough, but she was gone and so he couldn't feel her. There was nothing left of the woman but old bones and loose skin, gently rotting in the earth of a land that was never her own. He heard a cat meowing in a stand of bushes nearby, but didn't look at it. At least you have the morning sun, he said, quoting her after a fashion. Then he jammed the flat, wooden plank with her name on it in the ground and tossed the stolen coal shovel into the ferns beside the spot he'd found. Bag on his back, he walked at a brisk pace in the direction of the train yard pulling the card the odd Mr. Blackwell had given him out of his pocket. The card was no less dark than the man's name, and embossed with white lettering giving the address and platform and time of the departing train. He didn't know exactly what the job was. Blackwell had merely said, I need a man like you. But the work came with a sturdy promise of free passage to the east. Along with that, the relative safety of being on a working party with little time spent dawdling in the unpredictable towns of the American West. After all he'd come through, he didn't plan on getting lynched by some ranch town crackerjacks on account of somebody else's dirty laundry. Once he was through all that, in St. Louis or maybe Cincinnati, the safe box funds would pay his way. Not a lifetime of money, but enough money to build a life. He kept his bag high on his shoulder and his hat low as he passed through unfamiliar parts of the city, doing his damnedest to stick to the roads he'd heard were friendly. His heart sank when, despite all his carefulness, a police officer hailed him from inside a barber shop. He paused and looked at the man, considered running, 
and then thought better of it. He gave a big smile and nodded to the police officer like an idiot. You there, boy, was how the officer had started out. Now he was on, where are you getting off to? As though Ducky was actually trying to get away from something. He was, but that was beside the point. There was no way this copper knew anything about Mr. Jones' safe box. Yes, sir? Ducky asked. The cop pointed at the bag on his shoulder and Ducky set it down carefully and stepped back with his hands up. The officer, heavy set and pale skinned, took out his baton and poked through Ducky's belongings like it was a bag of garbage with a penny at the bottom. When he finished, he flicked the baton at the bag and Ducky picked it back up, shouldering it and smiling and thanking the officer as though he was doing him a favor. What are you doing in this neighborhood, boy? The officer asked. He kept his baton by his side. Heading for the train station, sir, Ducky said. How come? You got somewhere to be? The officer asked. In his mind, Ducky mouthed off and asked, Why the fuck else would somebody be going to a goddamn train station, you ignorant fucking pig? He smiled and nodded instead. Yes, sir, he said, holding up his hands. They were still dirty from the burial. He hadn't watched them for just this reason. I'm a shovel man, sir. They're going to let me shovel coal on a steam train, sir. He made a show of fumbling in his pants pocket before pulling out Blackwell's card. He handed it to the cop, who looked it over curiously. You can read this? The officer asked. Yes, motherfucker, Ducky thought. No, sir, he said, but I know what it says. And this is your name? The officer asked pointing just past where it read Duckworth Jefferson to the address. Ducky kept himself from rolling his eyes with impatience. He was about to be running late for the job, which might be worse than just having to trounce this cop and running for it. Once the train was gone, his options for getting away from Mr. Jones grew very, very slim. Yes, sir, Ducky said, beaming a smile at the man, who chuckled a little to himself. Another officer... Wearing no hat and holding a hand over a wrapping of fresh bandages on his neck, walked out of the barber shop. He pointed at Ducky. What in the hell are you bothering with him for, Vern? The man asked. He know where that goddamn bitch went that cut me? The cop beside Ducky rolled his eyes and looked at Ducky, pointing the baton at his face. You know anything about that tenement murder this morning? The cop asked. No, sir, Ducky said. He honestly didn't. A white man was murdered. The cop continued, his eyes searching Ducky's hard. Cops all thought they had magic powers that let them find out a lie. But Ducky knew all they really did was just look for any little reason to pin blame on somebody. Then they lied to themselves and said they did a good job of achieving justice and all that. They said it was a lady in a tenement building over close to the harbor. They said it was a lady dressed in men's clothes that did it. Officer Burlington over there almost caught her, but she cut him on the neck and ran. I ain't seen nobody like that, Ducky said, almost slipping into his own real voice. And I hope I don't, sir. He honestly meant that. (sighs) Was all the officer said in return. He put the baton back on his belt and turned to the injured cop in the barber shop. He don't know nothing. Course he don't. The other cop fired back, returning inside the building. The doorbell chime was about the only sound on the street, 
The cop sighed and looked at Ducky. You go on and get, boy, he said. And don't let me find out you've been dawdling around here. This is a nice neighborhood. Understand? Nice neighborhood always meant Cracker Jacks. Ducky smiled and nodded. Yes, sir, he said. Thank you, sir. The officer waved a dismissive hand at him and he took off in the direction of the train platform, trying to move just quick enough to not seem suspicious. The trip ended up being fairly uninteresting once he made it to the mildly industrial part of town where Blackwell's train was waiting. Another white man, this one perhaps twice as fat as anybody Ducky had ever met, waved him down once he approached the platform. Are you, boy, the man said. He wasn't a cop, so Ducky didn't hesitate to roll his eyes. The man made a show of both noticing and ignoring the gesture. He pointed to a stack of boxes and bags beside a mostly empty wagon. I need these brought up to the third car down the line. Understand? He reached in his pocket and pulled out a dollar bill. I'll pay you a dollar to move them for me, but only if you're quick about it. Ducky realized the man was pointing to the same train he was about to embark on and shrugged, holding out his hand. I don't do thing one without money in my hand, he said. The fat man blanched and put the dollar away in his pocket. Then you won't have anything, the man replied, thinking for some reason this would batter down Ducky's reticence. Ducky just took a breath and walked past him without saying anything, causing the man to sputter and shout something about laziness and gratitude after him. And maybe Ducky might have stooped to taking that dollar a day ago. But this morning? This morning he was walking on $2,000. Sue watched the last man hop onto the train, tipping her hat off her eyes to get a better look at him and then pushing her hat back all the way once she did. The boy was a fine specimen, tall and sporting a working man's muscle and broad shoulders, though he was still just a boy. Despite his hard, untrusting eyes, he only seemed about 18 years old, maybe younger. She sucked at her teeth, thinking, and decided to keep him off her list of maybes. Too young. He took the first available seat and dropped his bag beside him, rubbing at the back of his hand. She'd gotten a good look at the other boys who'd come aboard, and there were some real contenders amongst the bunch. A young Native American and maybe his mid-twenties, a white boy around her age, though he seemed about as feckless as a summer breeze, and an old, pale-skinned priest with sunken eyes and a cross burned into his cheek. He sat opposite her in their little booth, paging through his Bible and ignoring Sue's boots on the table. The rest of the lot were either too creepy for consideration or so damn ugly she'd use their faces to peel paint before she ever put a kiss on one. Not that she'd likely get the chance on this trip, there wouldn't be much in the way of privacy and less in the way of comfort. They had hanging racks and the next two cars up and this repurposed dining car for work, which just meant it was where they could sit and watch out the windows for rustlers. Racks of loaded rifles covered the rear wall, though they were locked with a crossbar that the little person had the key to. He was Blackwell's man on the job, tasked with keeping an eye on them even as they kept their eyes on the cargo. It was him that came into the car just then, with a cadre of lawman-looking types, all of them out of breath and sweating. The dark-skinned kid sneaked quickly to the front of the car, 
taking a seat opposite the tall Mexican and ducking himself down behind the bag on his lap. These fellows represent the Pinkerton Agency, the little man said in his odd, gruff voice. They're holding our car for a moment while they search for something. The little man sounded annoyed by this, but stepped aside to allow three men to step through the door at the rear of the car. They were all wearing bowler hats and gray suits, leather shoulder holster straps showing through their unbuttoned jackets. Someone, the man at the head of the pack said. Someone named Ducky, a black boy, a Negro, might have been coming this way. Might be on this train. You stole something. Don't worry about what it is. That's our concern. If he's on this train, let us know. Are you on this train, boy? The man looked to the far end of the car, where the dark-skinned kid was now shrunk down in his seat. Sue watched the priest look up from his Bible, his cold blue eyes looking off into the distance. He put the little book away in his pocket, clasped his hands, and seemed to pray. The Pinkerton walked deeper into the car, tipping his body to look into people's business. Most of them glared at him or averted their eyes entirely. Some smiled politely. Sue kicked her right leg up where it was crossed, letting her shaving razor slip from her boot and into her palm. She tucked the hat lower over her eyes, but adjusted herself so she could pop up if she needed to. Folks like this guy didn't much care about which dark-skinned type they got, so long as they got one. And there were at least three in this part of the train. Well, how about it? Do you understand? The man continued, walking down the aisle and speaking to everybody in turn. We'll have to hold the train here for a while. Our people in Blackwell's people are well aware of each other. All we need is the boy and what he's got. And if you're here, boy, understand you're causing trouble for everybody now. And we will find you. He'd stepped up beside Sue and placed his finger beneath the brim of her hat, raising it. The first thing she saw were the priest's eyes, which were serious and direct. He gave her a slow shake of his head. Something slammed into the roof over top the Pinkerton and he jumped back, looking around. He'd drawn his gun in a flash and both his compatriots at the other end of the train car had as well. Sue felt a shadow fall over her and looked up to see the spindly Mexican standing over top her. He had a soft smile on his face as he reached up to the ceiling and wrapped his fingers around the hilt of a fat, bladed knife with a turquoise inlaid handle. He stood at least three heads taller than the Pinkerton and looked down on him the way most cats look at mice, his neck bent to allow for the ceiling. I'm sorry, he said in his lightly accented English. I dropped my knife. Instead of pulling it free, the tall man pushed it to the hilt through the steel roof of the train car and then twisted, making a horrible noise as he finally pulled the thing free. The Pinkerton's eyes were wide as he stepped slowly back in the direction he'd come from. What were you saying about little lost black boys? What were you saying he has? Is it something I'd like? The Mexican's arm trailed behind him as he pulled the knife free showing off just how incredibly long his limbs were. The second the knife fell loose of the ceiling, his hand recoiled like a rattlesnake, 
slipping the knife into a turquoise beaded sheath hidden beneath his poncho. He leaned over the Pinkerton now, his head shifting softly from side to side. Their eye contact never broke until the Pinkerton yelped, having been backed up into his compatriots. Would you like to ask me your questions again? The tall man said, putting his arm on the wall over all three of them. We can step outside if you like. Then we can talk all we want. The lead Pinkerton took a breath and then shooed his men out onto the platform. They didn't say a word as the little fella closed the door and then looked up at the Mexican. Their size differences were so extreme it seemed somehow more normal than the way humans typically look. Sue realized she'd been staring at the spectacle the entire time, utterly transfixed. If it rains, you're the one sitting beneath that hole, you understand? The little person said to the tall man. He smiled down at him, bowing low and tipping his hat. Of course, he replied. But it won't rain then. The clouds wouldn't dare. The entire car watched as the man strode back to his seat and folded himself up beneath his poncho. And so it begins, muttered the priest. Sue looked at him, but he was staring out the window now. A worn pistol sat on the table where he'd earlier had the Bible. She opened her mouth to ask him what he meant, but the train whistle began then, and its screeching drowned out everything. She instead followed the priest's eyes out to where he was looking, into the untamed fields beyond the train tracks, where the California coastal hills rose in the distance. For a moment, she thought she could see the shape of a man out there on horseback, cresting the tip of a hill. And with that thought came the faintest sound of whistling, which should have been too low to hear over the train. But she was sure she heard it all the same. Then the brakes gave way, and they began their long trip eastward.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told and been telling doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.